When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is where we round up the best bits from our talk radio radio show and bring you a variety of conversations, insights and debate that align with the news, things we're interested and some amazing people. Coming up this week, we meet Diane Allen, a former lieutenant in the army, talking about what it's like to actually be a woman in the armed forces. Former footballer Jason Brown explains why taking the knee is not enough for the Premier League to really show their commitment to stamping out racism. Uh, We'll ask why society might be going back in time for so many women. And we talk to Juno Roche, trans writer and activist, about JK Rowling and what it means for the trans community. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. First up, we meet Diane to talk about women in the army. Forewarned Tales of a Woman at War is Diane Allen's biography, her autobiography of life as one of the most senior women in the army. She joins us now. Hi, Diane. Hello, Harriet. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Um, So tell us a little bit about, first of all, what made you join the army and how your kind of formative years in it were like? Yes, that's fine. And I should perhaps point out that for any military people listening, that as a lieutenant colonel, I'm perhaps not one of the most senior women in the army. It's still classed <laughs> as a fairly middling rank. So I just perhaps put a bit of humility in there as well. But We'll but, give but you I a joined... promotion. That's OK. <laughs> Thank you. But I joined when I was a teenager. I was one of the first women at Sandhurst in the 1980s. Um, so uh, I joined really from straight from school, which was still quite rare. Then I didn't join from university. Um, but it, it was still at the time in the 80s when flower arranging and uh, women were seen as a separate part of the military organisation. <laughs> and we were expected still to leave on marriage or certainly if we had children right up to the 1990s. So that was my first uh, start in the institution. And how did you find it? Did you enjoy it? Was it what you hoped for? Absolutely. I think I think to start with, you know, I, I was 17, 18 when I first started the process to join. And I explained what it was like to, to cross into that first Sandhurst, which is the officer training college. Uh, uh, and basically, uh, as the first women, they, they weren't quite ready for us. So I talk about not even having boots to wear, that we only had men's size boots. And the solution in the military at the time was to put stuff, two or three pairs of socks in the front of our <laughs> boots and that that would solve the problem, if you like. But it, it wow. was pretty exciting times, as you can imagine. And if you're a 20-something woman and sometimes one of the only women on a camp, there are a lot of both welcome and, and sometimes unwelcome advances. Mm. So just for everyone's reference, what year was this? So I joined in 1983 uh, and I commissioned. So it's about a six-month process at that time. Uh, I commissioned in 1984. So that's, uh, that's when it really started for women to go to Santa for officer training with the men. And everywhere in the 1980s was a very different world to what it is now. What was it like in terms of just, I, I'm going to say sexism or how did the men treat you? So in the 80s, I would say it was pretty much the same as broader society, quite frankly, yeah. in that the men, it was very different then. And sexism was rife. It was the same in the military. It was the same in um in society and you've only really got to watch the tv series of the times you watch the sweeney the professionals things yeah. like that and uh, it was pretty sexist women were seen a little bit as a you know just really coming into the workplace and uh, were expected to leave on marriage as i said so it's, it's just a very different time did that change in your time during the because you were there up until 2019 is that right 
Uh, yes, so I was full-time, so I was a, a full-time regular initially, uh, and then I left and became a part-timer, and I gradually got sucked back into the forces <laughs> around about 2012 to do an almost full, full-time job. So I've seen it sort of from all different angles in the forces. Um, but it has changed. It's, it's changed. Initially, it changed in line with society. And I would say up till the 90s, it was mostly keeping pace. But part yeah. of the reason I wrote the book is that it's, it's certainly my perspective that perhaps it's got behind again. And although its policies are much better, there are some what I call toxic pockets now that are really still dragging behind society and might still look a bit like the 1980s in some corners of the military. How would you describe those toxic pockets? What sort of things happen within them? So it's everything from what nowadays we call everyday sexism. There's still, and, and part of, of the last two weeks is on my website, I've actually got a connect to me. And I've heard about 100, 150 stories in the last two weeks, which mirror my own. But wow. the everyday sexism is anything from just people just taking you aside and saying that, you know, that women still shouldn't be in the military. It's still not appropriate. And if it's all right with, with the woman, that they'd still rather not work for a woman. They don't really get it. Um, and oh that's still going on in some corners. Right the way through to, um, I'm afraid, some, some very deep and serious stories, which uh, when I, I hadn't quite expected quite so many. So I quickly had to talk to some friends of mine in charity sectors who are both yeah. legal advisors and counsellors because there were stories there of rape and there were stories there of very serious allegations, some of which weren't being investigated still. So, um, yeah, I would say in some dark corners, we still have some issues that um, I still I think we need to address. You've said previously that you sort of you think the army needs to face up to its own Me Too movement, that it needs to actually start routing some of this out and dealing with it. Do you think it's ready to do that yet? Um, I think it's going to struggle and that's why I, I, I'm optimistic that it can do it because I do know that there's the vast majority of people in the military, men and women, are very good people. Unfortunately, and it, it's not yeah. just me saying this, but a lot of the reports that have been coming out in the last couple of years are saying very clearly that, that the ones right at the top, um, and these are not my words specifically, these were in the report, are sort of in feral packs right at the top. It's a privileged mm -hmm. cohort who perhaps are not yet willing to actually do more than talk about it. Uh, and that's the bit that concerns me. What gives me hope is there are some very good people too, though, who, um, who would like to see change and who silently come forward to me and said they wish they could speak up too. What happened to you when you spoke up about stuff that you saw like this? So um, mine, again, I, I think I'm just the human face of many other stories, but what I found yeah. when I spoke up is that in the last three years is that effectively you become the target. So rather than actually speaking up and dealing with the issue, which is, I believe, what I was taught to do at Sandhurst, and it's the values of the military, is what actually happens is when you speak up is it turns on you. Uh, and what happens is you become the enemy, you get ostracized. And that's the really difficult bit. And I write about the, that as the more difficult bit in the later chapters of the book. Um, but yes, effectively, you find your career is over. And that can be very, very deeply painful and emotional. How was that for you? Because you've described your sort of leaving the army as a divorce. Yeah. What was the final, I guess, the final moments for you? The, the final moment is, of course, resigning uh, commissions. Mm. You, you have to resign it to speak out. Um, part of military uh, regulations is we can't actually speak out uh, without, you know, without leaving so the actual final moment was uh, was earlier this year when I put in my resignation to leave. But um, the, the final moment was, was probably two years before that, when I'd, I'd spent two years trying to engage with the military and raise the issues and say, you know, this is going on. I don't think this is right. Um, but instead, what I was finding is um, effectively that they just were closing the door. They weren't listening. And the more you speak up, if you like, the harder the door was getting slammed. Did you think, and I've seen this um, a lot recently with the with the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah. that people sort of want to get on the bandwagon and then they almost get afraid of doing that and then they turn against it and that's when the door seems to slam. Because you say, 
I, I, I sort of agree with you. I think within any organisation, there are always pockets of bad behaviour, but it's never really the majority or very rarely the majority. But what can happen is that majority suddenly has been enjoying the silence. You know, it's yeah. been enjoying not having to deal with the problem. And when it's faced yeah. with the problem, that's when it turns its back on it. I really agree. And I, I saw a good reply on one of my well, Twitter feeds and was saying that, that they enjoy the power side, but perhaps not the responsibility of realising what privileges all of us have to some extent. And I've also been watching the Black Lives Matter stuff and it resonates so much about what all minorities in an organisation have in common mm. is this feeling of not being heard um, and not having the ability to set the rules. Um, yeah. And I think you know, the solutions are definitely in working together on that. And I could see very easily the um, ethnic minority problems in the military are extremely similar to the problems of the women as minorities in the military. Do you think it's going to change or have we got to a point where it's almost got a bit stuck and something big needs to happen? Well, I think I agree with you on the second point. I think it's got stuck. <laughs> I, think, I think in July 19, there was real hope in that an internal report called the Wigston Report came out and, and the media picked it up quite well. It, uh, it picked it up and it was written by an, a very senior Air Force officer who basically said, it's time to change. Things are going wrong. We need an independent defence authority and all these different things, racism, sexism, they're still going on. And the military stood up and accepted it. They didn't deny it at all, and they said they would do it. And then in that classic way, of course, nothing's happened at all. Um, and we did ask as part of our research is, how's that going? Is it improving? Yeah. Um, and, of course, their announcement was, well, it, it sort of got stalled. But I was really hopeful because last week our own chief, our boss, General Sir Nick Carter, did write a letter and say that he felt now it was time to enact the Wigston report. So that gives me hope. But uh, yeah. at least the words, the words are there to say that actually we, we probably have got stuck. I don't think we're quite as good as we think. And that is at least a start, a good starting point. Can I ask you, how has writing this book, being open about your experiences in the military, being open about what you see as, I guess, the failings of the military, how has that impacted you personally? I think it started when I first, it started in 2017 and it was initially the classic cathartic. I needed to get it out of my system. I couldn't quite believe that my own team, my own people had turned on me and it was extremely mm. painful. So it's, for about the first 12 months, it was just catharsis. And then gradually it became uh, an important story and I started connecting to other people who'd had the same experience and it slowly became more of a leadership role that actually my book could be the human face. It could be the face of hopefully encouraging other women to speak up and other minorities to speak up and, and try and have a proper military Me Too moment. So it became me finding my new cause, if you like, that I now had something mm -hmm. that I felt needed to change. And I've, I've spent, you know, the book to me is now what I call my call to arms. It's trying to encourage other women to reach out, share their stories. And a, a really good news bit, which isn't in the book, it's only happened recently, is that an MP has reached out to me and said she would love to take the stories forward and anonymise them and really actually look at this. And if perhaps the military isn't going to do anything directly, she would also like to have a look at it. So I think that's a really positive, it feels very positive for me. How do you feel about the army now? Well, again, I'd say that the army is still a great organization in many places and it's given me some great highs in my life as well it is a family it's extremely exciting it's a good at career i still believe if we can get rid of these toxic pockets that it's still a great workplace and it could be um so on the whole i still feel very positive about my experiences with the armed forces perhaps the ending a little less so um like all divorces it's extremely painful but I, I'm still very optimistic and I still see myself as wanting to try and bring the defence back in line with society and, and make it the, the best military force it, it, it certainly used to be. So, so, yeah, reasonably optimistic. Do you miss it? Oh, yes. I think I, I'd, I'd love to meet a military person who said they didn't, who um, <laughs> felt that they didn't feel that they'd left a family when they go. It's actually extremely difficult. It's... 
it is a real sense yeah. of belonging um, and it's extremely hard to leave the military. What would you want to tell any of those men and women reaching out to you on your website now? What would you want them to know? I would want them to know uh, a number of things. One is that um, if you are in a position where you do need support, um, we have now created a system where there is both um, counselling and also we are, legal advice is tricky to get to, but we have started to do to uh, create a bit ability to have a look at legal advice as well, all free. Um, but mostly, I really want my book to resonate and to give them the courage to speak up, come to me on the website um, and if they would like their stories taken forward even anonymously or not, some are willing to put their names to it, then there is an opportunity here for them to be part of uh, putting a pack of these stories together um, and take them to an MP who is willing to uh, look at the, the case of the case for change. So I think that's my main, my main desire at the moment. I love that you say the case for change is your main desire. What would you like to come out of all of this at the end of it? I think what I'd like to do is I think it's gone, and I think it's the same as the Black Lives Matter. I think we've probably reached a stage of growth and maturity in the UK where it is a little bit more than just having the words. We need to see the music and the dance all lined up. We need to actually see change. We need those individuals who are toxic, who still think it's okay to sit in back rooms and say that women have no place in the military. You know, we need to see our leaders in the armed forces say it's time for them to leave, not the women to leave. That's my view. And that sounds quite serious, but that's exactly, I think it's time to actually do something as opposed to talk about it. I think you're completely right. Uh, Diane Allen there, author of Forewarned, A Tales of a Woman at War. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now you cannot fail to have missed the fact that this week has seen the return of professional football to the UK. One thing I do know is that watching all of those footballers take the knee at the beginning of the match was a emotional experience for me I really the impact of seeing them all get down on one knee at the same time felt really important but here to tell us whether or not it's actually going to make a difference is former professional footballer Jason Brown hi Jason hi first of all tell us what did you think when you saw the footballers taking the knee at the games this week I think um it's it's obviously it's a step um in the right direction with regards to the fact that of unity um, amongst the players um, and obviously the hard work that Kick It Out is doing. But the, it needs to come um, higher above from the Premier League. You know, though the Premier League may have sanctioned the fact that you can have Black Lives Matter on the back of the tops, which mm -hmm. the idea would have come from Kick It Out, though the Premier League have sanctioned that 
players can take can nil. Um, that would have come from kick it out. That would have come from other pressures that are going on around the world, especially from America. I live in America at the moment, so that's happening yeah. across the country. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is what is the Premier League really going to do about it? What are, are they going to fund? Are they going to let kick it out come away separately so they're no longer funding them and they don't interfere when kick it out want to address um, equality issues properly? Or are they going to just say, okay, let's do this. Uh, let's make it look like we're doing something and we'll ride this out because the season will be finished soon and we'll, we'll plan it for next year. So kick it out, forgive my limited knowledge, but kick it out is the sort of the charity um, focusing on diversity and inclusion within football. Is that correct? That's correct. That is, all, that is, that is um, funded by the Premier League. Now, that's the difficulty. It, this is the problem mm-hmm. that you have and not many people know is that with it being funded by the Premier League and the systematic racism that's already within the Premier League, how can you then expect a, a, an equality charity to do the jobs and ask the questions that need to be asked on behalf of um, uh, black people or people of skin pigmentation as well as people that are gay? They, they just can't do it because they're always going to be told, be quiet, don't ask them questions. What are some of the questions you think need to be asked? Well, I think everyone is asking the obvious questions about... Um, the lack of diversity on the boards from women, um, people um, from ethnic minorities. The, the questions have been asked and been asked for many years. We're not saying we want token gestures and you, and, and you want the right people in their jobs. And there's enough qualified um, black people with, that can go onto boards. Like the PFA run a course where mm-hmm. it's, um, a qualification of being able to sit on a board, which I've taken as well as many other black uh, ex-black players, and there's enough out there qualified that are quali- more qualified than people that are, that are actually sitting on the, these boards. Um, you know, the, the Premier League needs to. The, we say the Premier League is the leading league in regards of um, moving forward and being forward-thinking, but we still hand out fines. Okay, we hand out bans to players, but what about yeah. the football clubs? Start, start deducting points. Stop handing out fines. You know, yeah. you can't just paper over history, hundreds of years of history where people are using racial slurs for hundreds of years with money. Mm-hmm. You can't keep, you have to start taking real action and that means taking points off of football clubs and yeah. when you're back and, and some serious sanction for players in any other job, a player will be sat Sorry, a person yeah. will be set for racially abusing someone else. In your experience when you were playing, was that commonplace for players to racially abuse each other? Um, not, not necessarily in the changing room. Did you, mm-hmm. did I hear things that, you know, growing up when I, at one of my former clubs, they would, you know, sometimes the coaches would say, let's have blacks versus whites. Um, wow. You know, I've been racially abused when I was playing for Wales. Um, yeah. Nine, I was playing in Serbia. Nine, I was the only black player on the pitch. It was my first game as captain, as captain of my country. And I was abused the whole game by 9,000 people. UEFA done nothing. Um, mm-hmm. FIFA done nothing. Um, the FAW supported me on it. But again, they didn't know what to do. And that's not their fault. No one knew what to do. Even my teammates in the change room afterwards didn't know whether to come and speak to me. I remember going back to the hotel and calling my mum, which should have been a proud moment for me and my family, and I was crying on the phone. Yeah. Um, and this is the problem we have, and not many people know that, that this is the problem. People say, oh, you know, turn the other cheek, be the bigger person. It's not about turning the other cheek and being the bigger person. You shouldn't have to put up with this full stop. So what you need is you need more unity. You know, we, you know, Raheem Sterling is doing a great job in trying to bring this and make awareness and using his platform. Then I, I say, well, where's the England captain? Where's the captain of England coming out saying, do you know what, I stand by my teammate and this is what we're going to do? Because players have the power. No matter what anyone says, the players have the power. And if the players can stick together and show unity and say, do you know what, this is no longer going to happen. This is what we want doing. And they have to listen. The Premier League, the FA, UEFA, FIFA has to listen. But for as long as they don't, then 
what we're doing now, unfortunately, unfortunately, it, though it looks great, it's just another token gesture. So interesting hearing you know, his take on, and I think we've all felt this at times in the last few weeks, which is the stuff um, that we really want to talk about when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to racism in this country. But actually talk isn't enough. It has to have action and consequences behind it. Um, Jason calling for action from the Premier League, actually saying fines and points. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. So have you you found recently that, um, well, possibly the the UK, US, for women, it's feeling like we've stepped back in time a little bit. It's been enhanced by COVID-19. We've seen women picking up the childcare, doing the homeschooling, uh, feeling like without childcare support, they're not going to be able to get back to their jobs. Um, Is this, though, a sign that we are moving back to the 1950s? Well, one author is saying yes. Dr. Marianne Stevenson, director of the Women's Budget Troop, says that this could be, COVID-19 could be the thing that sends women back in time. She joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Marianne. Hello. Uh, So tell us, why do you think we are going back to the 1950s? Uh, well, that wasn't actually something that I said. That was that was something that, that somebody else said in, in, in the Guardian article. Um, what I do think is that we're in danger of um, having a kind of two-tier return to work. What we've mm-hmm. seen with the lockdown is that there's been a huge increase in the amount of childcare that parents are having to do. Um, and men are doing more childcare than they've ever done before. But women are doing mm-hmm. even more childcare than that. So women are doing... 50% more mothers are doing 50% more childcare than fathers at the moment. Um, and there was a study by the IFS that showed that it, in every sort of pattern of work, um, women were doing more childcare than men, um, except for those situations where women were still working and um, their male partners had been furloughed when, or, or had lost their jobs when men were doing half an hour more a day than women. So even in situations where the woman is working, um, she's still doing almost the same amount of childcare as as the man. Um, And, you know, the problem there is it is very difficult for um, women to go back to work in that situation. You know, if your employer is saying, actually, now we're wanting people to return to work, but schools are still closed. um, Most children or, you know, if they're open, they're not they're not taking most people's back. Um, and then we've got the long summer holiday stretching ahead when there aren't the, the summer holiday play schemes up and running, but also people's, um, the kind of grandparents that do vast amounts of childcare in the summer holidays aren't able to do that. You can't get the support from friends and family that you used to get, which makes mm-hmm. it incredibly difficult um, to know how you're supposed to return to work in that situation. And there is a, a kind of danger that we're the re, really reinforcing those traditional gender roles. Why? Are we, I, I mean, this is the thing that sort of astounds me, and I don't entirely understand. Why are we reinforcing those traditional gender roles? Because, as you say, you know, we've got men and women both working from home. Uh, we have, we are in a society where we have been talking about this issue for forty, fifty years. We employers must know because it must be affecting them as well that their employees are now having to try and work and look after kids, and yet still women are picking up more of that labour. Why and where does that come from? Well, before coronavirus, women were doing about sixty percent more unpaid care, including childcare, than men, um, and the gap tends to be particularly large for parents of of younger children. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, it, traditional gender roles, traditional expectations run very deep. You know, when a when a baby's born, we ask the mother if she's planning to return to work. Nobody ever asks the father. Nobody says to, to, to a new father, are you going to go back to work or are you going to stay home and look after the baby? It's just not even an option that's on the table. We have a leave system um, which gives mothers uh, a year of leave and fathers two weeks in their own right. Now, there is transferable parental leave, but a lot of men aren't entitled to it, and it's not paid at a rate that means that that men can afford to to take it. Mm. So right from the start, we're kind of reinforcing that idea 
that childcare is is the mother's primary responsibility. So if you've got situations where um, the mother's been doing more already, um, she's seen as the default parent. So if schools are closed because of a snow day or a child is sick or so on, it's more likely to be the mother that takes time off work than the father. Um, so then when we hit a crisis like this, people kind of fall into pre-existing patterns. Children who've been used to going to their mothers for help with their homework um, carry on doing that when they're homeschooling. Um, employers of, you know, a lot of men will work for employers if they are only really employing men um, mm. who who haven't really had to think about their workers as also being parents. So there isn't the flexible working, there isn't the understanding there, but there's also quite possibly an assumption on the side of many men that it's not their responsibility. Um, so that, I mean, the same IFS study showed, for example, that where you had both mothers and fathers working at home, um, about 70% of men's work time was uninterrupted. So they were able to get on with their work, but only about half of mothers' work time was uninterrupted. So, you know, at least half the time when they were supposed to be working, they were also having to do something else as well. Given that we're all going to be in this working situation, you know, for the majority of us, at least for another few months and possibly for lots of us until the end of the year and into next year, how do you think that's going to impact women and their employability? And what would you like companies to potentially do or at least take into consideration in this period? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that the government um, is going to be doing is allowing people to be furloughed part time. Now, they've mm -hmm. done that um, really for employers to allow employers to, to furlough people part time and keep them working part time. But actually, it's a huge benefit to people who can't work because they've got caring responsibilities. Um, the furlough scheme can be used for people who can't work because of of COVID-related care and responsibilities. I mean, it hasn't been widely publicised, but the government did announce that um, a couple of months ago. Um, so if you could have a situation where uh, both partners could be furloughed part-time, for example, in order to do childcare, that would make a difference in this kind of immediate short-term crisis. In the longer term, we really need to be closely looking at who's, who's being made redundant as the furlough scheme ends. Because, you know, in a few months' time, the furlough schemes withdrawn, um, there are going to be high levels of redundancy, and particularly in sectors that women are more likely to work in. So if you think about hospitality, retail, apart from supermarkets, travel and tourism, um, they all employ majority female staff. Um, those sectors are going to find it very, very hard um, in the next few months, going, you know, towards the end of the year. And, and it is likely that there's going to be job losses. So we need to look at what's happening there and ensure that um, women aren't being disproportionately affected and that any support schemes that the government introduces to try and rebuild the economy actually create jobs um, that women can do and that women are, are trained to take up whatever new jobs are, are created by the, you know, the action that the government takes to boost the economy. Um, but in the longer term, we also need to look at things like our, our leave policies. We need to look at the way in which we assume that childcare is primarily the mother's responsibility. Um, we need to think about, you know, what happens in antenatal classes? Why don't we have the discussions in antenatal classes about how childcare can be shared more equally between women and men? Um, most men want to spend time with their children. You know, they want to, to play an active role in family life. But we've kind of set up the way we run the society in a way that often makes that difficult to happen. Do you think men are perhaps now more aware of how the childcare divvies up and how um, home life can impact on women's careers because they've been at home seeing it firsthand? I'm sure that is the case for a lot of people. I mean, I think one of the, the, the things that's really important is that, you know, all of our experiences of lockdown are very, very different, aren't they? You know, there isn't, you know, people say we're all, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. You know, for some people, we know that lockdown has been much, much harder than for others. Um, and so I think there will be couples where the father is actually spending a lot more time with, with his children than maybe he's done in the past and recognising the yeah. amount of work that's involved in that, recognising the amount of additional housework that's involved as well. Because I mean, the other thing about having 
children around all the time. It's not just that the children need looking after, but they they need feeding. They create more mess. There's more tidying up and cleaning and all of those sorts of jobs to be done as well. Mm. Um, and that we'd hope that that offers, you know, new opportunities to pe- for people to think about doing things differently. And I'm sure there's lots of people for whom this experience has made them reevaluate what's important in their life and think about how they want to live after the lockdown lifts. Um, but equally, we are also seeing large numbers of people where that, that may not be happening, um, where women are in, you know, doing the majority of the, the childcare um, and being left with a real double burden of paid work and childcare as well, you know, getting up early in the morning to try and get a few hours work done before the children get up and then spending the day with the children and then working late into the night to try and catch up. And not surprisingly, and we did some research with the Fawcett Society and academics at um, the LSC and Queen Mary, Mm. and we found that um, over half of women were suffering from really high levels of of stress and anxiety. Um, And it's not surprising, really, when you look at at that, that kind of double burden of paid and unpaid work. And then you add on top of it worries about the future in terms of potential redundancy, you know, what's going to happen to the economy as a whole, as well as the, the health worries that the, the virus is causing. Uh, Marianne, it sounds, is it's going to be a tricky time, but hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you for coming in and chatting with us. And also that really interesting piece there, which is actually, if you are in a position where childcare is an issue, you can talk to your employer about being part-time furloughed, which I didn't know. Um, and quite right, as Dr. Marianne Stevenson says that the government hasn't made a big deal of, but it's really useful, particularly for women. Although I would love it if it was also really useful for lots of men. I think that would be brilliant if we had some men going to their employers and saying, actually, I need to be at home with the kids. I need to be furloughed too. Let's see if we can make that happen. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, if you are anyway on twitter you probably saw the massive twitter storm that blew up last week when jk rowling tweeted some news on trans women and the differences between the concept of gender and sex uh her tweet which referred to a headline uh, the headline was creating a more equal post-covid world for people who menstruate and jk rowling retweeted this with in quotes people who menstruate i'm sure there used to be a word for those people someone help me out wombard wombard uh basically suggesting that we should just be using the word women and there was no reason not to twitter took massive offense at this uh, lots of people calling her um a trans exclusionary radical feminist or a turf lots of people saying she shouldn't have done it Um, And J.K. Rowling doubled down on it. She tried to explain herself. She pushed more comments about sex and gender. And eventually she ended up writing a three and a half thousand word statement explaining why, including talking about her experiences of domestic violence and how she felt about the forthcoming Gender Recognition Act. It was a lot to take in, particularly in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, in the midst of coronavirus, (laughs) everything else that's going on. Um, but we felt it was really important that we talk about it. And here to join us to do just that is trans activist Juno Roche. Hi, Juno. Hi, uh, how are you? I am good, thank you. Thanks so much for talking to us about this. Um, yeah. First of all, let's just start with you know, a week or so ago when J.K. Rowling posted these series of tweets about her views on the concept of gender and biological sex. Mm-hmm. What did you feel when you saw those tweets? Honestly, it's like it's like um, you know, everyone who's trans who has been, you know, I'm a writer principally, not an activist. To kind of get the rest straight, I think we have to take more action oh, than I take. I'm sorry, Gina. Could you say that again? We've got a bit of a, a strange line for you. Oh, okay. I said um, I said I'm a writer rather than an activist. Okay. In, in, in a sense, I kind of, uh, uh, I mean, I feel like I have been around for a long time and I probably was an activist a good few years ago and now I write. But I, mean, I think that the point of saying that is that, you know, for as long as I've been around doing the stuff that I've been doing, there's been people like J.K. Rowling coming out and saying stuff. 
you know, not being experts, uh, but saying stuff to try and kind of shut us down and to try and stop debates there. And to try and stop us from having any kind of sense of freedom, really. And I think that you know, what I thought was that it's a really, it was a bad thing. I just thought it glorious. It's I interviewed some of the youngest people in the country about transitioning, socially transitioning. Let's yeah. be clear, these, these are young people. Uh, sorry, do you know one second? We're just going to try and call you back, if that's okay, so if we can get a slightly clearer line, because I really want to hear what you're saying. And it's so frustrating when we have brilliant guests on and slightly dodgy technical issues, which is always the way. But one of the things Gina was saying there is that part of the reason I think people found J.K. Rowling's tweets so um, emotive was that J.K. Rowling speaks to a lot of young people. She speaks to a lot of young people who might be struggling with their gender identity who might be feeling confused about it who might be feeling ashamed of how they're feeling um and she is seen as a role model for them so if she is seen to be criticizing or denying how they feel that's a very difficult place and this is not to say that um we shouldn't discuss these issues that things shouldn't be talked about but it is about understanding that when your audience is that young you have to be really careful what you say uh, hopefully we've got Juno back with us now hi Juno hi yeah I'm back yeah oh, that's brilliant so, thank um, you much better yeah yeah <laughs> no, good. So, and I just I just caught the last bit of, of what you said and I mean I think the thing is is that we live in a world now where really younger we're much younger people yeah. like I first I knew I was I knew that my gender didn't match the way I felt inside when I was eight years old, way back in 1972. And in 1972, you could do nothing about it. I had to wait 30 odd years to do something about it. Yeah. And now we have, we have younger people who have, feel like there's a kind of safety in order for them to be able to express themselves and express their truth. And that's all they're doing. And, and listen, I was a primary school teacher for a long time. And we used to say to children every day, be the best that you can be. Be honest about yourself. Be true to yourself. And we used to say that to children all the time. And yet, when it comes to trans children, we say, yes, tell us, be the best you can be and live, you know, live your best life. But then when they do tell us, we say, no, we don't believe you because we don't believe mm. trans people, especially trans women. We don't believe trans women can ever be women because there's this thing called biological sex. It's actually, you know, it's not, it's not true in this, in this, in 2020, it's not true. And that doesn't mean that trans people aren't silly. They know that some yeah. people are born with certain genitals and some people are born with other genitals. But, you know, to say a statement like for people who menstruate, is a true is, is a true statement now because there are people who will menstruate who don't see themselves as women you yeah. know and that's just a, that's a, a true statement in 2020 that's a true statement and i get that people find that really difficult but you know that's just a, you know it's, we're not going to go away and those people who menstruate who don't see themselves as women are not going to start going back in the closet again so i kind of get the kind of fear around it but, you know, it is misplaced. You know, there's no data at all that says that trans women have ever done any harm to women at all. Yeah. There's no data whatsoever. So it's coming from a kind of spurious place of fear, which we all get. You know, women are treated badly by men, you know, in society. Yeah. We get that. So no one's denying that either. And I think the trans community were really horrified by the Sun's kind of headlines around J.K. Rowling and domestic violence. That was yeah. appalling. Anyone that suffered domestic violence should be supported. Trans people don't want anyone to come to any harm. They just want to live their best lives. That's all they want to do. Well, I think there's always that very important thing to remember, which when we talk about this, one of the arguments around the Gender Recognition Act so often is, well, this will allow men to wander into women's bathrooms completely unstopped. And I was like, well, there's nothing stopping men wandering into women's bathrooms right now if they want. Absolutely. <laughs> men, men that have treated women badly have never yeah. needed an excuse. They've never needed a piece of paper. They've never needed a wig. Yeah. They don't need any of that stuff to treat women really badly. We should be coming together and focusing on the real issues. 
And the real issues are that 95% of all rape crisis centres have closed down and women's refuges have closed down. We should be focusing on that and coming together, not arguing about, arguing and toss about what makes a real woman in 2020. Because, you know, all we're doing is, is, you know, you know, it's like if I think about the years I had to spend hiding who I really was to please everybody else and the kind of damage that that did me, then, I mean, we shouldn't want that for young people. We should want young people to transition socially, and that doesn't mean that they have surgery or go on medication. Yeah. So all of those horror stories that people tell that aren't true, what yeah. they do is that they socially transition to be the best that they can be, and that means that they go through school as themselves. That means that they can mm-hmm. have dreams and aspire at school. They can go to a prom as themselves, if, that, if that's what they want to do. They can go to university. Mm-hmm. The kind of trans people of my generation had to do. We had to waste years, and we had to jump through hoops and please people. And you know, there's no reason. I kind of get that people like J.K. Rowling are feeling the ground is moving. But part of getting yeah. older is is accepting that you don't control the ground anymore. It's not your ground anymore. You know, there are younger people coming up, and they've got different ideas about the world, and. If we didn't have that, we'd never have progress. And it is progress that people that menstruate who don't consider themselves to be women can still be included in conversations about menstruation, whether we like it or not. However however mm-hmm. bizarre that may seem to people that kind of go, well, that's not the case. If they menstruate, they must be women. But, you know, what, you know this is not about denying people their their authenticity. This is about trying to create a world that's just a kinder, nicer world in which more people can feel at ease in their bodies. I mean... Can I ask you a question? Do you think... um, Do you think social media has helped or hindered the trans movement? Because I was thinking about this the other day, which is I see so much anger and uh, just hate and horror spewed at well, speak to pretty much everyone on social media, but honestly, particularly at trans yeah. people on social media. Um, but equally, I'm really aware that we're having this conversation and that these issues are being highlighted because social media has given everyone a platform to talk about them. And I was just wondering, for you as a writer, really con- whether you felt it helps. I, well, I think it's really connected. I mean, if I go back in my life, I didn't even mm. hear the word transgender probably until my 30s. I mean, people would yeah. talk about sex changes. Somebody's had a sex change or something. You know, it's that we didn't have that information. What the internet, what mm. social media has done is, is kind of created networks of information. And that's allowed people to realize that they're not the only one. I mean, one of the things that's really nice about the kind of, in the book I've just written, and I'm not trying to put the book, Please do. It's selling really well, so, so I'm not trying to... <laughs> but, I mean, one, one of the nice things is that, you know, it's like I kind of... I followed Mermaids for a year and Gendered Intelligence, mm. another organisation that works with young trans people. You know, and they have networks now. They have networks mm. of support. And a lot of the time, the, the other way that they meet up is on kind of social media, is by creating social media networks. And, you know, like anything in the world, it, it would be... Uh, you know, it'd be silly to, to kind of like to assume that, that before social media, there wasn't a lot of bad stuff that went on. It did. It went on in the press. You know, there were as many yeah. people that, you know, if I think back about trans people like Tula, who was the Bond girl, who was completely mm-hmm. torn apart, you know, on the front pages of the red top. So, I mean, I think it's always gone on. I think the difference is, is that we can, you know, people can appear to be much more weighty than they are on social media. So I think there's only a small group of people who are actively attacking the trans community. But for some reason, they look like there are many more people. I think it's a small group of people who haven't quite realised that the the whole debate has shifted on and people aren't going to go anywhere. People aren't going to kind of give up the ground. So even if they feel like they've won some battles, or defeated us in some way, or stopped us in some way in relation to the Gender Recognition Act. I mean, if they feel like that, if they feel like they're going to kind of halt progress, they're not going to stop progress because we're not going to go anywhere. 
You know, all we're seeking is to have exactly the same rights as everybody else. And maybe it will be that definitions need to change. And maybe it will be that in relation to sport and in relation to other stuff, that certain things will need to change because... You know, there's an estimation that 1% of the population is trans. And I would imagine that there are many more people that feel kind of gender variant mm. for whom gender doesn't really work. Because, you know, as a total thing, gender doesn't really work for many people. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it's not like a, if gender works, we wouldn't have Trump. <laughs> Trump, is <in> power <laughs> because, Trump is in power because gender quite clearly is a broken model. So, I mean, <laughs> in some kind of senses, the world is really changing and we've just got to kind of get with it. So all I feel about J.K. Rowling is I feel like you're, I don't say I'm not interested. I'm too old to be interested in the Harry Potter books. But all I see, all I see is, that, is that there's an awful lot of young people for whom those books provided great comfort. Mm and solace and you know and, and, and sanctuary and I think it's just a real shame that somebody decides that actually they're going to kind of start to toxify their brand for the sake of what and then yeah. to kind of write the, the 3,000 word essay and to put into it about the stuff that's happened do you know you're just confusing dangerous men with a group of people that are so marginalized and have such little power and, you know, we're too, we, we have been an easy target for too long and we're not an easy target anymore. We're not. We have writers at Vogue. We have films mm-hmm. being made. We have politicians. We have, you know, we have, we're not, but those days have gone. Those days when someone can just bully us yeah. into submission have gone. You know, I have three you know? books out at the moment. They're all in mm-hmm. the charts. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like we are not those people anymore that would just meekly ask for acceptance. So I just think I feel sorry for J.K. Rowling. That, 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 yeah. Juno, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about it. It's really great to hear your views and to hear that sort of understanding, but also um, a boundary, I think, is what I hear there. So thank you very much for sharing with us. Juno Roche, their author and a trans writer, telling us about her experiences. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.